Hello, and thanks once again for joining me for The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm Kevin Weber. I think I've got a real exciting show for you this week. We're going to take a look at the history of the designated hitter rule. I'll talk to you about umpire camps. We'll spotlight Hall of Fame umpire Hank O'Day. And we'll have our first ever interview on The Hammer with Tim Farwig. NCAA Division I umpire from Elkhart, Indiana. So, sit back, make sure your speakers are working right, your earbuds are in tight, for this week's episode of The Hammer. For this episode's Umpire Spotlight, I'd like to look at Hank O'Day, National League umpire and and Hall of Fame umpire. His nickname was The Reverend, and um, O'Day is the only person to have served in the majors as a player, a manager, and an umpire, and a scout, working, you know, the National League for 40 years, 30 of those calling games. Um, he was at the plate for no hitters in four decades and was behind the plate for both the famous Merkel Boner play in 1908 as well as the only unassisted triple play in World Series history in 1920. And he ended up umpiring in 10 World Series, including the first Fall Classic in 1903. He actually was a player in the 1880s and in, in, into the early 1890s and uh, was successful in the World Series himself. He won two games in the 1889 World Series and and played for nearly 10 years um, before arm trouble. He was a pitcher before arm trouble uh, started giving him some trouble. When he came in as an umpire in the later part of the century in the early 1900s, you know, umpires were routinely spiked, kicked, sworn at, spit upon by players, Fans, you know, hurled curses and bottles and whatever else they might have at the umpires. Mobbings and physical assaults by players and and patrons alike became commonplace. You know, they needed police escorts. That was a familiar thing to see. Um, It was was rough, you know, um, and you had to be very mentally tough and maybe a little crazy too to want to be an umpire in the early days. And still, the game was forming at the time. I mean, there were some things that um, Hank O'Day did to help uh, improve the game. Um, much like Bill Clem, who we talked about last year, though both men were quite different. Um, but anyway, some innovations. Um, O'Day uh, kind of introduced the um, the foul stri- the foul strike. You know, after two foul strikes, um, you know, it's just a continued foul ball. They were talking about, um, you know, coming up with other ways to, you know, well, before that, they didn't do that. You just could follow the ball off, and it wasn't a strike until, unless you swung and missed or it was called strike. So he did that to, to help improve the pace of the game. 1910, they are talking about, you know, the game being a little too low scoring, so they wanted to add four, um, four strikes instead of three, which... That's just a crazy thought to think about. Uh, but he was against that. He talked about actually adding a, a cork-centered ball, which is what they did. 
Um, and that seemed to work, you know, and not all things in baseball have worked, but in, in general, they seem to kind of work out. I mean, him being a pitcher, you know, he kind of looked at those things. He, he was against early on, against getting rid of the spitball and some of the other um, things against pitching, all right? Um, the big thing with him is, you know, like I said, he was he was different than Bill Clem. I mean, Bill Clem was, you know, more of a, you know, out, um, out there, you know, guy that was um, respected by a lot of people. He was more of a showman and self-promoter. O'Day, he didn't want to be in the public eye. You know, Clem was a drinker. He dined with players and managers, which that'd be a big no-no nowadays. O'Day avoided all off-field contact with baseball people. Clem would, you know, make up his own rules at time. O'Day, you know, would suggest things on the rules committee and then get them changed. He wouldn't change them in the game himself. But he insisted on the enforcement of the rules as written, whereas, you know, you know, Clem would kind of do his own thing. And, and that's kind of the case with the most famous thing that goes with O'Day, the 1908 Merkel-Boner play at uh, the Polo Grounds in New York when the Chicago Cubs were visiting and playing the New York Giants in a tight game. They were neck and neck for the pennant. And remember, there's no divisions back then, so if you, you won the National League, you, you went to the World Series. So there was first and third, and um, there was a single to second, and we had um, Fred Merkel, the young center fielder for the Giants, was on first. And as was the custom of the day, when there was hit and the runner from third scored, a lot of the fans would pour onto the field. They didn't really have outfield fences and, and those kind of things. So to get away from them, they would just basically run to the dressing room, which was frequent, I believe, in the polo grounds, was in center field. So he ran out there. He never touched second base. So Johnny Ever saw this. He tried to get the ball. Joe McGinnity, the big all-star type pitcher for the Giants, grabbed it and threw it into the stands. There's a big tussle and everything, some chaos on the field. O'Day's watching the whole thing. Um, he was actually working with, an, with a partner, a younger partner on that day. Um, a lot of times he would work by himself, um, especially those early days. Only sometimes that they actually have a partner. Anyway, he's watching. Um, somehow, Evers got a ball. Don't know if it was the actual ball or the one that was thrown, you know, or some other one that he found. Probably wasn't the one thrown into the stands. He went and stood on second when, you know, the man he had to force out. The, the base umpire was not paying attention, so he conferred with O'Day, who watched the whole thing, and basically said, no, he never touched second. They declared him out. You know, the field was all shambles, of course, and people all over the place so he's like there's nowhere going to be able to clear this and finish this game before dark because you know obviously there's no lights in 1908 so they had to replay the game um if needed at the end of the season of course cubs and the giants finished tied with 95 wins they had to replay the game and of course the baseball gods were not with the umpires and the cubs won and went on to beat the detroit tigers in the world series and all that kind of stuff and for the next 17 years until he stopped umpiring, O'Day was definitely reminded of that every time he went to the polo grounds. And, you know, it was worse for Fred Merkel because it's Merkel's boner because, you know, everybody said he cost them the pennant. So that was the rule, you know. Um, later on, like Bill Clem and some other umpires, but notably, notably Bill Clem said that it was a, a stupid call and he shouldn't have made that call and he shouldn't have allowed the run. And, um, you know, nowadays... Um, you know, we would all say, I, I would think that it's the right call. That is what the call is. You're supposed to go to that next base as the rules are written. Not just kind of make up your own thing and say, well, that's good enough. 
all right though again we don't really know for sure if it was a, the actual ball that was there so in, in, in a lot of ways you know Hanko Day should be given more credit with the innovations and things that he did as an umpire um, it's always said that Bill Clem was the greatest umpire of that time period in the early 1900s but uh, O'Day you know doesn't get that credit because he was this kind of uh, a loner kind of guy that wasn't particularly friendly and um you know, it kept him out of the Hall of Fame for a long time until 1989. You know, well after he had died, um, is when he got into the Hall of Fame as an umpire. He, he should have been one of the first to actually go in. Um, it's kind of interesting that a couple times, you know, I think it was 1912 and 14, um, he stopped umpiring. Hank O'Day did, and he first managed the Cincinnati Reds, and they were, you know, 10 games under 500 or something. And then he went back to umpiring, and then 1914 he managed the Cubs. Um, and they were under 500 as well, and he went back to umpiring. So he has um, that, those experiences. He was known as a guy with a quick trigger. He, he, he threw out a lot of guys throughout his career. Um, third highest percentage rate of um, ejections in Major League Baseball umpire history. But people say he, he was fair, you know, Basically, though, I mean, you just knew there were certain things you can't do. Your conduct, that's what he's called the preacher. So, you know, swearing and things like that. You did not put up with any of that kind of stuff. And if you were coming after him, he was going to he was gonna run you right away. But um, they said, you know, he gave people a little bit of a leash to, you know, not like a call or something because he was competitive. He was a player. He was a manager. He understood what they were going through. Um, but um, he only took so much. Um, I think it was Christy Matthewson said that, you know, arguing or, or having a conversation about a play with Hango Day was like, you know, trying to see how much gas is in a gas tank with a cigar. You know, you're, you're really you're really ready to blow up the situation any moment now. So um, he was um, one of the more respected umpires of his day, um, definitely helped young players uh, and young um, umpires as well come along and contributed a lot to the game in the early days to make it the game that we know it is today so no doubt about that i mean the foul strike rule i I like that i mean i'm glad that it's two strikes you know with two foul balls there um otherwise we'd be there all the day you know some guys complain about you know three hour game and we'd have five hour games if if those weren't counted as strikes right away so that's what i got uh hank o'day um baseball hall of fame umpire his hall of fame plaque um in Cooperstown, uh, New York. It reads, um, uh, umpire 1890, and he umpired up to 1927, earned universal respect and praise for unwavering resolve to make the right call, especially unpopular decisions, a strong-handed enforcer of the game's rules, and cured nearly a half a century of service in baseball, more than three decades as a premier and umpire, another 10 years as a manager, and um, in, a, in a player, selected as arbiter for 10 World Series, including the first Modern Fall Classic in 1903, umpired uh, nearly 4,000 games, third most in history at the time of his retirement, displayed great courage in making controversial Merkel Boner play call in 1908, and establishing authority for the profession. And he did some, you know, umpire um, training and, and recruitment and things afterward. So, you know, courage and confidence, that's something that every official and definitely every umpire needs to make the call that you know is not going to be popular. And Hanko Day is the poster man of what that is. He knows he's going to make that call in 1908 and people are going to try to beat him up, literally, 
okay? But he's going to do it. I mean, it's really easy to sit there and say, no, it's good, you know, he's safe, let's get off the field, that kind of stuff. But Hanko today was not that kind of guy. He was going to do the right thing. So something to learn from and something to aspire to. And that's uh, this week's uh, Umpire Spotlight. Frequently I'm asked about umpire cams and what I think about those as far as being um, kind of a newer assigner, but also just as an umpire that's attended a good number of camps. Um, I personally try to go to one camp, at least one camp a year. I've gone to two or more at at times um, for a variety of reasons. I think that it certainly helps you maintain the things that you've learned maintain um, your base knowledge that you have to reflect and go over things that are that should be basic to you that sometimes we fall into habits and we don't do them obviously if you know you're working a lot of two-man you know and and you're newer to it and then you go to two-man camps or a two-man advance camp then you um, you know get better at that at that system if you um, continue to progress, then you should go to a three-man camp because there might be some opportunities for you there or potentially a four-man camp. And um, a lot of those are invitation-only, but those are, are good things to, to go to. They work on basics there as well, but you know they work on the specifics of, that, of those mechanics. Some guys think that going to a camp, you know, you're basically like paying to try to get yourself assignments. Now, is there some truth to the fact that if you go to camps and you show assigners that you're willing to put in the effort to get better and then they're looking at their arbiter or whatever software system they use to assign, they see your name, they see some other guy's name, you've gone to the camp, he hasn't, you're very equal, yeah, you're, you're probably more than likely to get the assignment over him. So I, I guess that money you put into it maybe does do that. I don't think that assigners, there's no assigners I know, that if you don't go to the camp, you get no assignments. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I guess individuals are are different, but I find that hard to believe. You got to show that you're willing to to get better. And that's what camps do. Now, what camp is right for you? Well, some guys want to go to, you know, the more more well-known camp that might be out of their region. You really need... to start to go to camps that are in the region that you live with the assigners that actually might give you games. There's no reason if you live in the Midwest, like Michigan, like I do, to go to some camp out in California with a bunch of West Coast assigners that are more than likely never going to give me a game. I mean, it's not like they're flying me across the country to do some game or something. So I'm definitely much better off going to a camp in um, the general Midwest um, and hopefully checking out you got to you know look at the websites and, and see what assigners might be there or who they might who the instructors that are running the camp might report to and uh, go to to those camps that's a, that's money better spent if you're planning on moving out someplace you know there you go I mean it is an exposure thing you're showing what you can do there's there's no possible way that assigners can see every umpire. And even if they do see you, 
you know, they only see a certain certain things that you do. You know, maybe you're working the bases, and you know, there's not a whole lot that happens. If you're working the plate, you know, that's maybe a little bit better if they happen to stop by one of your games. But you know, if it's 37 and, and snow flurries, they're only going to stay for so long. But at the camp, they get to see you do a variety of things. Even if you make mistakes, they get to see how you um, react to those things and how you try to get better. So the more times you can do that and show people that you're trying to get better and you're trying to improve any weaknesses you have, um, the better. There's no doubt about that. And if you're not willing to put in that money, which, you know, usually if, if you know you do your taxes and stuff, a lot of stuff for officiating, you can deduct from taxes, you can deduct uh, your camps and stuff. I mean, that's um, definitely something to look into, you know. So, you know, I'm not telling you how to do your taxes, but... You know, it's definitely within the legality of it all. So, you know, you can kind of get it back later on, the money that you put into it. It's definitely worth it. Um, here, I'll just use an example. I just had somebody the other day that was asking me about, you know, what camps they should go. So, Bruce Stone Jr., um, who was one of our um, main assigners here um, in Michigan and in the surrounding states for, um, well, high school baseball, but predominantly for collegiate baseball. He um, has three camps that he runs, you know, that um, he started, you know, in the name of his father. So he's got his regular kind of two-man regular camp that he runs in um, either January or February inside here at the community college in Grand Rapids. Then he added a few years ago the two-man advance camp, which is outside during the late summer or early fall at Davenport University. And around that same time, maybe a little bit after it, more a September time frame, is his three-man um, three-man camp. And he's thinking about um, adding a four-man camp, but it's not there yet. So these are three camps that we have here that, you know, $275, I believe, for the um, the January-February one, like $300 for the other ones. I mean, I, I go to these because they're, they're local. They're 20 minutes away from my house. I've attended all of them. I usually now go to one camp. I usually go to the three-man camp. If he ever adds a four-man camp, I, I hopefully get to go to that. I've gone to the two-man advance. I've gone to the January-February one, uh, I think, at least three times. Um, and, you know, some of the same instructors are there. Some are different. Bruce, of course, is always there, and he's the main assigner that assigns most of my games. So I'd rather him see me do whatever I do, good or bad, and also have things reported back to him from the instructors there on what I've gotten better at or what I need to work on. Um because he's the one that's going to give me games. Or he's going to talk to Rich Fetchett, who I'm sure a lot of you know, who, you know, assigns uh, a vast majority of the Division One games here on, you know, the eastern side of the country. All right? Particularly in the Midwest. So he can talk to him. Um, and, and then potentially any other D2 assigners that might be out there that are in a different state. That works much better for me than traveling to, I don't know, the Northeast and going to one of the camps out there. Not saying those aren't good camps. They certainly are. But it's not beneficial to me. And plus, I'd have to, you know, if you can have a camp like I, I do that's local and you don't have to get a hotel, and you don't have to, like, go out to eat every night and spend the money on that and, and the gas money or even flying into it, then that's certainly much more worthwhile to do. Um, so I, anyway, I was talking to this umpire the other day and he's gone to the... He's gone to the uh, January-February camp like four times. 
And, you know, maybe he's he's past that. I, I think he probably is. You know, maybe the two-man advance camp is really where he should be, potentially the three-man camp. But he's kind of a newer collegiate official, so he's probably not really ready for three-man at this point. But if he wanted to do it, that's fine. But to prove to um, Bruce and to the other instructors that he's capable, um, that would probably be the best fit for him. And sometimes, you know, some, some guys prove it in their first year. Some guys, it takes two or three years, you know. Um, there's varying plans. But if you keep working at it, you know, whatever your pace is, it's hard not to compare yourself to other people. But if you keep working at it, you know, eventually you'll get it and you'll, you'll show that you have the, you know, conviction to, to keep moving forward. All right. Um, so that's kind of my suggestion. You know, you kind of look there. I know that, uh, you know, CBUA, like that I'm a part of, that's Midwest and and basically you know Midwest center of the country and everything you know Bruce's camps are affiliated with that I know they have the evaluation clinic down in Westfield Indiana I believe that they have a three-man uh, clinic in, in Springfield Missouri they got like a three and four-man camp more for higher level kind of d1 type guys in, in Oklahoma and Norman um, so those are definitely good ones, you know, to look into if you're in, in those areas of the country. But I know that like um, out east, you know, I believe they have, I think it's out east that they have the black and blue umpire camps. And then, you know, there's southern southern umpire camps are there too. There's the, um, uh, there's a, you know, I can't remember, I'm right off the top of my head. But there's, there's several that are down in Florida that are really good camps. I see some of the film on those and, and check them out. And of course, there's always pro school, but that's a whole nother situation, which maybe I'll talk about at some point. But I'll briefly say that if you're considering pro school, you need to talk to somebody that went to pro school and see what the experience is and see what they think about it. And, you know, maybe they, you know, especially someone that went and has seen you umpire and, and get their opinion on that and see if that's something that's worthwhile for you. Your age depends on it. Obviously, your ability. Um, you know, it's not it's not like a given thing you should do it. Now, it, it, if you know, particularly if you want to try to get a, a job in minor league ball and try to work your way up. If you're just doing it just to improve yourself, and um, you know, for a high school or a collegiate umpire, and um, you certainly would. I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to go to pro school just to do that. I'm, I'm never going to be a minor league umpire. Um, if they offer me a job, I mean, I've got a full-time job. I'm a teacher, you know, I, I'm not going to spend the whole summer, you know, working in the minor leagues. I mean, maybe, you know, and they wouldn't give it to me even if I did it after I retired because I'd be way too old for something like that. But to, um, really improve your abilities, um, that would, that'd be great. I, I would love that. And, you know, that would show assigners that you're really serious about things and you're really trying to take that next step. You know, that's really what it is. Trying to prove that you can maintain and that you can take that next step forward and uh, to whatever the next level is for you so that's kind of my take on umpire camps and what i think about that certainly would appreciate any feedback you might have for me you know send me an email or leave me a voice message and let me know what you think about it um, i'm sure at some point i'll have some guys on here talking about that particularly um, bruce Dillon jr um, I'll have them on talking about it. All right.
Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Well, Tim Farwig is joining us here on The Hammer, and uh, Tim is a very accomplished NCAA Division I umpire. Um, he's worked all kinds of levels in college baseball, from junior college and NAIA, D2, D3, and currently works mainly Division I in the uh, Mid-American Conference, Big Ten, uh, American Conference, Horizon, Atlantic Ten. He's um, worked uh, conference tournaments at lower levels. Um, he's worked at the MAC tournament before, I believe three NAIA World Series. Is that right, Tim? Uh, actually, four. Four. Okay, there we go. I want to get that one in there. And he's also worked internationally in the uh, Pan American Games in Mexico and Panama. And he's an instructor at numerous camps throughout the Midwest. Um, I met him at the Bridgestone Senior um, Umpire Camps. Um, and he's also a person that's done some charity work, which we'll get to a little bit later. So thank you for joining us. And um, I just... Uh, First question, I guess, is how did you get into umpiring, Tim? Uh, well, probably not really any different than anybody else. When my kids were in Little League, uh, it became very apparent that uh, there was a need for uh, the, the parents to volunteer an umpire. And I gravitated towards that as opposed to coaching and started that when uh, my oldest son was six years old and just fell in love with being back in the game in that way and not being satisfied that doing six and seven and eight year olds uh, was going to be my ceiling. I basically started doing some research, uh, joined the high school association here in Indiana and then basically started going to camps and basically just continued to move up and that that in a, in a nutshell is pretty much how i i started umpiring yeah so no pro school for you you just kind of started from the bottom and just kept working at it and moved yourself up so that is correct yep and there's some inspiration there for a lot of guys i guess <laughs> so, <laughs> so you've worked with a variety of umpires over the years high school level all the way through college and also international. Um, so when you so you've seen a lot of different guys, you know, speaking different languages and everything else. But when it comes right down to it, what do you think makes a good umpire, no matter what language they speak or what they're doing? Well, in my opinion, when you ask me a question like that, I don't look at it as it's a combination of a, of a lot of things. And sometimes it's more of off the field than it is on the field. Yes, I think a good umpire or a, a good umpire is somebody who gets their calls right, uh, but they're very consistent. Um, they understand the rules. There's somebody who understands to know that, that knows how to take care of business on the field. And I think that's that's a big part of it. But I think the bigger part of what makes somebody a good umpire is basically how they handle themselves off the field. 
with their partners, with their signers, uh, just in general, because I think that's what makes or breaks people. It, it's funny, and this is a can this this story or this storyline is uh, constant throughout umpiring that when you receive an assignment, most umpires don't really care about where, uh, when, what time. It's who am I working with, and I think that is the person who define. That's the that's the kind of umpire you want to be, and to me, that's what a good umpire is. Uh, just somebody that you want to be with, somebody that you want to work with. Yep, I definitely can uh, attest to that. I, I, I'm one of those guys that look at who I'm working with too. <laughs> just like yeah, yeah. So. yeah, I don't even accept the assignment. I go and look and I, I who am yep. I working with? And yep. As if that's going to change whether I accept it or not, but that's yeah. what I really care about. <laughs> then you deal with it later if you don't like who you're working with. I exactly. guess exactly. <laughs> and, and and quite honestly, I'm I'm very fortunate. I don't. I, if there's a list, it's going to be very small of people that I wouldn't want to yes. work with. Um, and, and quite honestly, it's usually not because of what they can do on the field. It's the, it's the what you would call the cancer in a locker room. Just people you just don't want to be around uh, after the game, before the game, uh, or if you're traveling with them. Uh, that's usually when the problems uh, happen and exist. Okay. Well, that's, um, I think, a very interesting answer, and I think a lot of guys can relate to that. Well, one of the reasons why I, I had you come on to the show is um, I did a little feature a couple episodes ago on the, the new stuff that they're doing with the 22nd rule in the NCAA. And you've had um, a little work this fall uh, trying to figure out what the NCAA might be uh, trying to have us do and working with the new timing uh, mechanisms. And um, what did you kind of discover this fall about this rule and and what is your kind of take on it all? Well, I think when it was first introduced, uh, and I don't know exactly when it was announced, but when it was first announced, I think there was a lot of confusion because all that was announced was that this was the new rule. We didn't have any interpretations as to how it was going to be in, not only enforced, but just understood, you know. Uh, we were we were taking wild guesses in some of the camps uh, in late summer and early fall as to how this was going to happen. We even went so far as to uh, uh, test some new timers that are out on the market with our best guess as to what you know what is this how's this rule going to work? And then fortunately, uh, before a lot of the fall scrimmages uh, started, um, and I'm actually looking at it right now on October first, they the NCAA, NCAA, that is, published interpretations. And I believe the interpretations have clarified and made this rule and its enforcement much easier than we were ever thinking. Uh, so long story short, I was able to use those interpretations, practice the uh, timing uh, guidelines within in real games, and just get a good feel and idea of how this will work coming into the 2020 season. Do you anticipate there'll be any problems or do you think it'll be pretty smooth? No, in fact, of the, you know, and I, I probably, I would say officially did it three times during three scrimmage games. Of all the opportunities that you're timing, which is basically now every pitch with somebody on, especially that was more importantly what we were trying to test we only exceeded the 22nd clock i i would say a handful of, of times over those uh three games 
And part of it was these teams were still not practicing or emphasizing this yet. In fact, many coaches didn't even want to discuss it. They didn't want their kids even or players to even know that this rule existed. But what I found, and I think what, what most people will find, especially in the Midwest, this is not a problem. And usually these these things are driven by other areas of the country. Uh, but if you apply the a common sense approach to the guidelines that we've been given, I don't anticipate there being any issue this uh, this coming season. Well, I certainly hope you're right because you know, we we have enough issues to deal with. We don't need something else. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> and, and, and I do yeah. too. And and uh, I, I, I hopefully I, I hope for that as well. I I personally think. And I, I am fortunate. I don't work a lot of two man anymore. And I'm not saying that's my fort. That's not the fortunate part. But uh, I'm fortunate that I get to work in uh, multi uh, person crews, three and four man. So there's obviously trying to be attentive in a two man crew is going to be yeah. very difficult with this rule. And I think that the box timers that are on the market, specifically for baseball are the only way you can go in in basically enforcing this rule and when i say enforcing this rule that i mean actually keeping time on every pitch with somebody on it on base especially yeah, so a stopwatch is not going to cut it in two man a stop absolutely not and i i think you're going to see it i think i think you're going to see a lot of watches on uh people that you don't usually see uh you know it's always been a kind of a, a no-no that you don't wear a watch on the field and I know that's kind of changed with some of the fitness watches here over the last couple of years but I don't if your attention is drawn with your eyes to something else other than what's in front of you I that's where I think the problems are going to be because things are going to be yes, missed I um, agree and the excuse of well what do you want the time or do you want me to watch this that that's not going to fly um, and and these timers are an investment. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, people have asked me, you know, how much are they? And, you know, I've told them and they just look at me like, well, that's crazy. Yet, I think these are the same people that will go out and buy a new chest protector. Yes, yeah. our, our new plate <laughs> shoes know? or whatever they're doing. Our new yeah. plate shoes at the drop. You know, so to me, it's, a, it's an investment in your profession, uh, your craft. And I think it's about it. I think it's a wise uh, uh, investment. Okay. Well, I, I'm I'm definitely going to be getting myself one before the season starts. Not saying I want to spend my money on it, but you kind of got to do it. So, right. right. So you've been umpiring for a good number of years now, and um, think back to mm -hmm. when you first started to umpire, either in high school or in, in collegiately as well. And there's been lots of changes. You know, whether the the way that we umpire or the changes in and the way baseball is. What are some of the things that maybe stand out to you as far as how things have changed since you first started doing this? I think just some of the emphasis, different rule emphasis that have that have changed since I've started collegiately. Uh, those have been the biggest changes. And a lot, a lot of them are about pace of play. Uh, you know, I've seen the hit by pitch basically come full circle and, and the rule changes. I, I think that's been a, interesting uh way to look at things but i think the biggest thing that to me that i've seen is just the the, the thirst for knowledge or understanding 
of mechanics and what you see now on social media and what different groups are putting out across the country and just seeing guys gravitate to that and wanting more and more and more. I think unfortunately still at the high school association levels on down that thirst for knowledge is not as great. Yeah. And I, I think that's unfortunate. And I can remember when I was really getting serious about umpiring uh, and not to not to make myself any older than I am, but the internet was relatively new. <laughs> so, so finding things were very difficult. Uh, and, and nowadays you don't have to, to work very hard to find that information. And I think that's the biggest difference that I've seen uh, along with the video. I mean, the video aspect of where potentially no matter what level you work now, whether it's, uh, you know, little league, uh, 10, 11 and 12 year olds or division one college, you have potentially are going to be on video somewhere, Mm -hmm. somehow. And I don't see that as a negative as much as I see that as a positive. If you're using that to, uh, to watch yourself, uh, to evaluate yourself, to make yourself better. Uh, Um, but uh, I, I, you know, those are to me, those are some of the biggest differences that I've seen uh, since I've been uh, when I first started. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, a few years ago, um, or not too long ago, I don't think, you started the Umpire Strong program, um, which mm-hmm. is uh, something you're very passionate about. Can you um, let everybody know what that is and maybe how they might be able to get involved with that? Sure. Back in 2016, I had the opportunity to work my first international tournament in Mexico. And uh, with trying not to get too deep and too long in the story here, uh, I was told by many people that had done international baseball that don't be surprised if you basically leave everything you take with the other umpires, because most of them just don't have the ability to buy that equipment or have access to it and so a lot of them rely on visiting umpires leaving their their equipment uh, the case in point there was a umpire from uh, Colombia who showed up with nothing and one of the first things he did when he got there was to seek me out and basically say can I borrow your equipment That's basically when I work the plate and just as that time went on it was roughly two weeks that I was there just seeing what some of these umpires used and shared and just just made me think we're so what we have is so Mm -hmm. abundant you know I I made the the comment earlier you know those guys don't think twice about buying a new chest protector uh, or new plate shoes or whatever well if they're replacing something that that equipment uh, is usually if it was like me it just kept building up in the closet and I saw the need and when I got back after that tournament and talked to several people they all shared the same thing as yeah I just got all this stuff sitting around doing nothing and what we did pretty quick after I came back from that tournament was to just collect it all between three or four of us and sent it through different various channels, uh, very expensive channels. We found out uh, when, when you're FedExing to Mexico and to Panama. Yeah, exactly. 
to uh, Columbia. So uh, different things like that. And that's where basically the Umpire Strong uh, campaign arose. And what what I've done since then is kind of used, whether it's here in Indiana, local association meetings to kind of talk about that. or the different camps we would use, you know, I use different camps that I might be working at as maybe a drop-off place uh, for just used equipment, stuff that guys don't have a need for anymore, but still is good equipment. And uh, our, that has been the easiest thing to, uh, to do in the sense of collecting the equipment, but the uh, dispersion has been the most difficult part. And, uh, We've uh, gone through a, gone through a few different sources, but uh, right now we work through a group called Umpires Without Borders in Chicago, and that has been a, a very uh, established and stable group uh, that works with a bunch of different groups internationally. And so, basically, Umpire Strong is just kind of the collegiate arm for them to collect equipment. Uh, and like I said, I didn't want to make that a long story, but that, that's that, okay. It's that's a, kind of a, kind of in a nutshell what's been going on. Uh, we've kind of changed the focus of having you know all these huge campaigns with money and and websites and different things like that, and kind of back down and just kind of let word of mouth and a little bit of social media and just you know uh, th- those type of things just kind of spread the word and and to continue to collect and and. And a lot of equipment has been collected. A lot of it has gone all over the world at this point, especially through the umpires without borders. Uh, so it, it's just, it's been a, it's to me that the most gratifying thing is when I get pictures back from where it's gone and you can say, you know, Hey, I remember that mask or yeah. uh, you see uh, umpires in Mexico wearing CBUA hats, uh, mm-hmm. which to them is like gold. And uh, that I think, giving them the opportunity to uh, especially down in Latin America, giving them the opportunity to do what they love to do with better equipment is just a very satisfying thing. So uh, I'll continue to do it as long as as people are willing to continue to donate equipment and uniforms. Okay. And I I believe you have a website or something, right? For that, if somebody wants to check it out and maybe try to get involved or... Well, like I said, the website, we've kind of let that... Oh, you let that go with the... Kind of let let that die because what I have found is social media works just as well anymore nowadays. So uh, Umpire Strong does have a Facebook page. Uh, We we do kind of use the moniker uh, Ump Strong. That's kind of our our little uh, nickname or slogan, if you will. But... uh, Basically, if you if you look up Umpire Strong on Facebook and message through that, uh, you'll contact me and, and we can always find a way to get that equipment or let you know of somewhere that might be a collection point somewhere okay. during the year. Great. Awesome. Well, that's all I've really got for you, Tim, and I really appreciate you coming on. And, um, you know, you're my the first guest ever. So you have those <laughs> bragging rights for whatever that's worth. Well, <laughs> so. I, I will. I will. <laughs> treat that as an honor and i appreciate you asking me to be on and i uh, i wish you well in the off season and wish everybody well as the as the 2020 season is just around the corner yeah it'll be here before we know it for sure exactly so. all right well thanks
For this week's rules segment, I'd like to look at the designated hitter rule and the history of the DH. Uh, Younger umpires don't realize that the DH has not been something that's been around ever since the inception of baseball. Um, Even for myself, I, you know, it's basically been around most of my whole life. I mean, I came in 1973, and so I was just a you know, barely being able to walk by the time that happened. But uh, the DH is used, you know, throughout professional baseball now, of course, and throughout amateur baseball, except for the National League, which, um, you know, they voted in 1980 to try to adopt the DH, and that didn't go through, and we really haven't seen anything since then. Um, There's a lot of people, and and I have to say I'm on the side of, of thinking that, you know, both leagues should use the DH. I mean, I do like... National League Baseball and and the differences in the way the game is played. But if you're doing interleague play like they do, um, it only makes sense nowadays. It's, you know, there's, they're too close to leagues. But anyway, it's also, uh, you know, a fixture in um, professional leagues in, um, in Japan since 1975. Um, You know, they use it in interleague play if you're in the American League Park. Same thing with the World Series, which is kind of fair and unfair. Um, the NCAA and, and the NFHS uh, have their own versions of the DH rule. Um, it was incorporated in college baseball in uh, 1974. The Big Ten and the Western Athletic Conference experiment with it, and then they added it in there. They tried to have it um, basically be used in a similar fashion that the American League was using it. But if, um, as anyone that umpires college baseball knows, the NCAA designated hitter hitter rule is much, much more complicated than what they use in the American League or high school or any other place. If you don't know about that, you should um, look online and and look up the designated hitter rule for NCAA and just read those three or four pages that are in the rule book for that. Um, Anyway, the Cows rule, you know, provides that, you know, the same player could serve as the pitcher in a designated hitter, which in a certain way is a good thing, but, um, you know, it's definitely caused some problems over the years. Um, high school added it in 1976, you know, and it was permitted to, you know, you're permitted to have a DH in place of any starter, regardless of their position. Of course, uh, last week I talked about the changes to that for 2020, um, which makes it a little more complicated, but probably a better rule as far as getting more players involved in the game. All right. So that's our little history of the designated hitter rule um, that's been around with us uh, since 1973. They were working on some things with that uh, a few years before that. It's not going to go away. Baseball purists don't always like it, but uh, there's some value to it as well. And um, definitely something you need to be familiar with for whatever level you plan on working. So that's the designated hitter and its history. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I appreciate all of you sticking with me until the end here for this episode, which ended up being a little bit longer than some of our previous installments. But I I, I would hope that you would agree that it was definitely worthwhile, particularly our interview with uh, Tim Farwick. And I'd like to extend my gratitude to Tim for being our first ever guest on the hammer. I 
think he did a great job and, and definitely showed his passion for umpiring in the game of baseball and being the kind of teacher and leader that he is within the umpiring community. Um, he talked about his Umpire Strong program that he started and uh, gave details within the interview of how you might get in contact with him or get involved with that if that's something that you choose to do. I certainly urge you to do that if you can. Definitely something in umpiring is you know giving back. Um, all of us in our own way have certain successes, you know, some more than others, but everybody has some certain successes and you got to pass on the knowledge that you, you've come across and help the people coming behind you. They might be younger, they might be older than you, but, uh, you know, it does better for our whole umpiring community if, if we all get a little bit better. And it makes all of our jobs a little bit easier along the way, too. Well, I'm trying to put out an episode maybe um, once a week. That's kind of the goal now, somewhere around the weekend to have it drop. And that's what I've been doing the last uh, few weeks here. We'll see how I can keep on that schedule with everything else going on in life. Um, and also whatever interviews and such that I can line up. If you have any feedback for me on topics you'd like me to cover, um, people you'd like to have me try to get on the show, please send me an email, spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. Please leave me a voicemail through the Anchor app. It can be 60 seconds or less. Um, If you don't want me to use that voicemail on the show, that's fine too. You know, you could just kind of state that in the voicemail. But if it's just a quick way for you to give me some feedback, I'd appreciate that as well. And, and if you don't say anything, I, I might use it on the show. So, you know, those are kind of the thoughts that I have as far as, you know, where the direction of the show is going. Um, I think I have a lot of topics I can get to as we uh, move through this off season before um, things start really getting to roll in February and March for uh, a lot of guys around the country. Um, and so until then, keep calling strikes. <laughs>